0: Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us for the Evangel Life conversation, question and answer session. And uh, I'm here with Dan, and we're going to answer some questions, Lord willing. I think there's a couple that we didn't get to last week, and so we're going to get to those, but uh, we've also got a couple new ones. I think the first one, I'll go ahead and read it, Dan, um, and then we can just work through them as they come. But the first question is, uh, I believe in the oneness of God. But I am still unsure of a few things. Was God a fleshly body when he created us in his image? Or did he only become flesh in the incarnation of Jesus? If God was always flesh, was his fleshly body separated from his spirit for 33 years when Jesus lived on the earth? Thank you for the question.
1: I can start. Sure. Okay, so, um, was God a fleshly body when He created us in His image? Or did He only become flesh in the incarnation of Jesus? I think John 1 tells us plainly that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that all things were made through Him. So, it's clear that the Word, as in the, the plan of God, the uh, mind of God, uh, that was to that exists outside of time, was already present with God, and in fact, it was God. And yet, it says in I think it's verse 14, "The Word became flesh and dwelt among us," yeah. which would certainly indicate a becoming in time. Yes. Uh, so I, I, you know, and there's the other passages at Galatians where it says, "In due time, uh, at, at Christ." was born of a woman born under the law, you know. So, there's, I do believe that He became flesh. Yes. He was not, there's not a, There was not a pre-existent physical body, you know, that was eternal from the beginning. So, I guess maybe the question is saying, so how were we made in His image, since we are flesh and we have this particular appearance? I don't think that the image being referred to there, uh, first of all, I don't think it, it necessitates believing that that body was in time already
0: existing when human beings were created. Right, it, right. It, but you're saying in the mind of God, when he calls those things that are not as though they are, in, in God's mind everything that he did later is in his mind already done in a certain sense. Yes. So he can make things in the image of Christ even before Christ has taken on human form in in the man in Jesus of Nazareth.
1: Yes. Exactly. And, uh, because we are told in Hebrews 1 that He was the exact representation of His being. Yes. And the one that God yes. sent forth His Son, that He was in His image. Yes. You know? And so, but I also don't think image just means that you have a nose and you have two ears yeah. and all of that. Yeah. It means that there is, there is a, a capacity to feel, a capacity most of all to love, yeah. a capacity to understand and yeah. so forth. That there is something of the essence of God, yeah. that He has created us with the same Capacities, Unlike the animals or all, so many other things, even the angels on one level Amen. are not able to understand or relate in the same way that a human being is because we were designed to commune with
0: God. Amen. Yeah, it's like fundamentally you might actually flip the question and you could say what differentiates us from the animal kingdom is what are those aspects that are in God's image and all those spiritual aspects of love, of faith, of sorrow, of emotion, of joy, of language, of everything that elevates humanity out of basically an intelligent ape, those are the things that that really speak to us more about God's image. And we could even say that God is spirit. No one has seen God at any time. God is spirit. And so if we start from that premise, we say that what is most in God's image in us is our spirituality, not our physicality. Yeah. But it's a great question.
1: Yeah. And so, so the second part is probably probably plain, but, but certainly not. Yeah. God was not separated for, you know, during those 33 years. No. Yeah. The Spirit of the Almighty God, Jesus confirmed that God is Spirit. That yes. is the essential nature of His manifestation is His Spirit. But that that Spirit would dwell inside of a mortal temple in Christ uh, for those 33 years.
0: Yeah. So, Amen. It's, it, it still does. Peter, who says that, that the Son, that Jesus was foreordained, but He was revealed in the last days. Yeah. He was foreordained from the beginning of time before time but he was revealed in these last days so the next question is it was a privilege to listen to amanda lancaster during the fair you might like to hear that (laughs) Um, her testimony of loving and teaching a child with autism was beautiful if you did not recognize autism in a child growing up but now see the symptoms as a young adult how do you deal with this especially if no one else sees Thank you.
1: That probably falls to me to answer. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, Amanda is my wife, so that's referring to our journey with our son.
0: How did y'all come to know that he had autism?
1: Well, we rec- we didn't really recognize the symptoms as symptoms of autism uh, when he was young because we didn't really know what autism was. We had he- I had heard of it, but I had I had not known anybody at that time that had autism and so we just weren't that familiar with the subject so but by the time he was two years well really when he was one but especially by the time he was around two years old which is I've since come to learn is typically when it would manifest Um, when he was around two years old uh, he wouldn't make eye contact with us he was not developing uh, language skills really at all. He, he could copy some things, but he seemed to have no capacity to understand how to uh, respond to questions. He would never take initiative to call for mommy or daddy, and this was persisting towards his third year to the point, and, and other people were noticing it even more than we did. You know, he was our fifth child, so we had some experience with children, and we had enough experience to know that um, each one is a little unique. So we just thought, this one is really unique, and, and he is. Uh, but we didn't identify that this may be a condition, you know, in, in, until he was he was close to three. By the time
0: we had him professionally diagnosed, so what did that? What was that process like when you got him professionally diagnosed? Uh, well, was we it just reading a book and coming to a conclusion yourself, or
1: no? Um, we actually had several people from the community, um, including our our own parents, but but several people were raising questions about. I wonder if he's. Is there something going on and and some uh, Your mom had read a book on it and uh, Some others had that had more knowledge than we did uh, Had some suspicions about it and gently suggested to us that we we maybe should look into it more instead of just Trying to work with him. He's he's slow. He's behind, you know Maybe we should look into this to see if there's something behind all this that we're not so that's what prompted us to then take him to uh, we took him to the Child Study Center, and um, it was in Fort Worth at the time. They moved it to Houston, but uh, and and met a wonderful Indian
0: uh,
1: lady there, a doctor that specialized in these things, and she uh, helped us with it. And her diagnosis was that he was um, classical autism, uh, is what he had, which. You know, they call it ADS, it's the the Autism Disorder Spectrum, Mm -hmm. Um, and we came to learn that spectrum means just what it sounds like, that there is a a very wide variety of manifestations and levels of this disorder that can take place in people, from all the way from those who are um, never capable of speech, who just sit in the corner you know, dribbling for their whole life kind of uh, disability, all the way up to uh, people that are, they usually will call it Asperger's, where it's a higher functioning autism. Um, I should probably preface all this by saying I I am not qualified to give professional medical advice (laughs) to anybody who is uh, inquiring about what do I do here, Uh, but I can speak from my experience. I will say that um, it's my understanding that autism classically will manifest in, in early childhood. Mm-hmm. Usually two years old, three years old is where you're really going to start seeing the difference between them and a normal child. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very uncommon mm-hmm. for it to appear later in childhood than that. Um, it's apparently not entirely unheard of. It can happen. that They call it late-onset autism and it can happen even into the teen years that a child will start to develop symptoms that they didn't display before Mm -hmm. uh, autistic symptoms, but that's very unusual. So uh, maybe this case that they're writing in about is one of those um, unusual exceptions that that there may be something different going on there. I don't know. There's a lot of debate about why that would happen because for years the scientific community said it didn't happen. Yeah. And now they allow that there may be some exceptional circumstances that that make that happen. Um, I don't, I guess they mention here, how do you deal with this, especially if no one else sees, that would seem to indicate to me that uh, it's pretty mild. Mm -hmm. Because uh, if if it weren't, people will immediately notice. My son is 16. He's made a lot of progress. He can read and write. He can express himself. Mm -hmm. He can work with his hands. He, He does all kinds of things quite well. Much, much farther along than we imagined, actually, in his earlier years. Uh, and that's been wonderful, but uh, you would, most people would know, probably within a couple of minutes of conversation with him, they would be able to detect that, that he operates on a different wavelength mm-hmm. than some of the rest of us, that mm-hmm. he's very unique. Mm-hmm. So if people are not noticing, the good news in that, if I'm understanding this correctly, the good news in that is um, you have a mild situation, mm-hmm. and, and things can really be fine there. I might just comment on this topic. You know, one thing that we've we've learned in our journey uh, through this is that all of us are a little autistic.
0: Amen.
1: Sure. (laughs) You know, the word autism comes, the root of it is auto, which means self. Mm -hmm. And it's designated for this condition because they seem to be unaware of others. They often lack social graces. They uh, lack the understanding of what communication is really for Mm -hmm. and why it would be expected of them to participate in it, you know, and they tend to be interned. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, there's a little autism in all of us, mm-hmm. and uh, it, part of the journey that has, for me, been insightful is, is to contemplate how God feels about His children. Mm-hmm. And when He looks at us and He sees us interned and uncommunicative and without much grace towards Him or each other, and He says, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And we know what God did, did for us and continues to do for us. He, he came in our likeness he became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory Amen. you know and we saw that he was human we saw that he identified with us and i think that that's what we can do not only for an autistic young person but for all of god's creatures we can try to we can try to empathize and we can come into their space we can do what it takes to to reach into their world and try to be like them try to help them and there even there's ABA—it's called. Um, th- there are there are behavior therapies uh, that are common with autism that we used some with our son that are that are very helpful, and a lot of them involve um, placing yourself into context where you are relating to the child in the areas that the child feels comfortable in, and that they activities that they enjoy to do, you just join in with them until you get some engagement going on, you get some eye contact going on, you get some communication going on, mm-hmm. because you're becoming like them, even mm-hmm. if it makes you look stupid. Yeah. You know, you're willing to do it, you're willing to humble yourself mm-hmm. in order to communicate that there's somebody here, there's somebody who cares, there's somebody who loves, and you can too. And, and I think that's probably true for all our kids yeah. and all of God's people amen so that's that's where I would start and, and reach out to other people that have experience
0: with it and um, yeah and consider a professional diagnosis certainly it, there's a real danger um, in taking a lay perspective especially on things like mental disability and and running with it as if you know what it is um, then you could start treating something that hasn't really been rightly discerned and so in seeking God, and, and getting the counsel of friends and doing your own research. Also consider getting a professional diagnosis so that that would be a, a witness to confirming your, your conclusion. because there's just no value in treating, you know, uh, cancer with cold medicine. Yeah. There, there's no value in running down a trail and then... Or treating a cold with chemotherapy. Sure. There we go. That's <laughs> even better. So, yeah, a lot of times parents or, or loved ones can have a heightened fear of a condition and see it where it may not be or where it may not be as severe as you think or it may be something similar but treated very differently. So it may be very wise to to get professional evaluation of that.
1: and. I'll just comment that uh, my wife works in the medical field. Uh, she's a, a paramedic and, and a midwife, and uh, she said that one of the most frustrating things in trying to help people with their health is that now that we have the internet at everybody's fingertips, everybody self diagnosis Yeah. because they've already looked it up, and they've already figured it all out, and they've read this and that and the other thing, and if it's online, it's got to be true, you know, so mm-hmm. um, anyway. There's nothing like talking to somebody that actually knows what they're talking about because you can, you can go down a lot of rabbit trails that are not going to lead you to clarity. Amen. They will just um, enhance your fears.
0: Yeah. And getting um, clarity or different input doesn't mean you have to take the course prescribed or whatever. It just may be one element in informing your approach. So let's go to the, second, uh, the third question. Question for the broadcast. Last Sunday... Brother Ossie, I guess that's me, mentioned that envy was one of the most fundamental sins. This brought up a question as to what are the other root sins, fundamental sins from which the bad fruits come. It seems that the root that is usually addressed is pride, but if we had more clarity on this, <clears throat> I believe we could not I, I believe we could put sin to death more quickly. Also, following this question, Brother Ossie said that, Quote, human rationalism, apart from God, and envy are the driving forces of Babylon, speaking metaphorically. I got to thinking that if the temple of God has foundation stones, such as we see in Hebrews 6, would the Antichrist and the worldly temple also have its foundation stones? If so, what could they be? It's an interesting question. Yeah, I I do believe that envy is... uh, is perhaps the mother of sins uh, if not the mother of all sins it, it, it's it's right up there at the top it's seen in the in the the fall of man the devil used envy toward God and and uh, envy toward wisdom he used envy as the first mechanism to get them to partake of what God had forbidden mm. and then of course envy is at work um, according to James in, in, the, uh, in, in Cain, when he slays his brother Abel, um, he is envious of the blessings he has from God. And, and that is the birth of the city culture and all manner of things came out of that. Um, envy is behind wars. Why do you war? Bite and devour each other. Um, envy is another word for desire or lust. And there's a right kind of desire and there's a wrong kind of desire. We're talking about the kind of desire that does not lead you into a trusting relationship whereby you receive gifts from God, but leads you into the the war of the flesh whereby you try to grasp and steal what you think should be yours. So, you know, some of the the, um, the fundamental sins would seem to be envy, pride, and fear. I would say that those would, would, would come close to to being the, the, the most fundamental sins. And then y- you stem from those and you start seeing the mechanisms of those three most basic ones. And, and, and you've got violence and you've got cruelty. Uh, all manner of, of sins start stemming from those. But it would seem like, you know, sin most broadly defined for us is not a legal problem, it's a relational problem. So sin is the refusal to live in the constraints of a loving relationship with a Creator God. And so sin is a problem because it breaks apart relationship. And, and envy, which I think can't be separated from suspicion, at least not in the parent-child equation or the the son and God equation, that's got to be at work. It's it's this demand from God of something that we should trust Him to give us, basically. So yeah, that's where I would say, you know, the big picture, anything that is bringing a separation from me and the source of life, me and God the Father, that is a sin. He says in, in Isaiah, the Lord's hand is not so short that he cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear and so on and so forth. And, and so this tells us that sin is a problem because it breaks apart relationship. Mm-hmm. So sin is the mechanism whereby we go after things outside of relationship. If you think of a lot of A lot of sin, it's trying to go after a pleasure or a thing outside of the givens, the order, the harmony, the design of relationship. And so you could say that the root of of sin is distrust. (laughs) You know, he says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So maybe before envy, pride, and fear, we just say distrust, which is suspicion. So those would be... And Those the, would be the some original
1: the sin would bear that point out, yes, because the the whole context and environment in which it hatches is, you know, the serpent getting Eve off by herself and saying, well, let's talk about God, you know, is He really who He says He is? Yeah. What about His motives? Have you thought about it? Yeah. You know, and so it's, it's holding out temptation, yes, when she saw the fruit that it was desirable to make one wise and that it was pleasing to the eye and all of this. So there's the, I want that, mm. coupled together with, I'm not so sure about right. the boundary setter here.
0: Mm. What were his motives? That's powerful, and so what we're really saying here, what we're groping toward, is that distrust or suspicion is actually more formative than envy. It it has we have to start there. I mean, the first thing I think that well, or to say it the
1: backwards maybe we okay. would say that it's that it is the loving, trusting relationship that guards us against those things that would Amen. otherwise that we would otherwise be seeking. Amen. And if that can't be moved out of the way by the deceiver, um, then we're guarded. Amen. We're not, we're not going to be going after those things because we're going to trust that the instruction given to us, you shall not eat of that tree, was given by a loving God who wants our good. Mm-hmm. And if we really believe that, well, people pretty much naturally want their own good. Yes. So if you really trust that, then right. you're not going to go after that. Right. But when you start to say, so he has to tear that down right. first and say, don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't act in accord with, with with right relationship. Just distance yourself a little bit and mm-hmm. think about it long enough. Mm-hmm. You can come up with a reason why God isn't on your side.
0: Mm. I think if the writer of Hebrews says, "...see to it that there be in you and none of you an evil heart of unbelief that departs yeah, from the amen. living God." And that seems to suggest that if we've defined sin as separation from the living God, based on Isaiah 59, the writer of Hebrews is saying that unbelief is what makes you depart, is what brings that separation.
1: Comment on unbelief. I just think it's it's powerful to to hear he, the writer of Hebrews say that, the evil heart of unbelief. Yeah. Because I think we sometimes don't take it for what it is. Yeah. We see unbelief and doubt and fingernail biting about God's intentions towards us or or the intentions of those that He would place in our lives towards us as stewards. Uh, you know, he, he, we see that and we say, Oh, poor thing, yeah. you know, there's wrestling a little bit. I don't know. I don't know if I, fearful. I'm wrestling. I'm fearful. Yeah, yeah, I'm wrestling with unbelief. And, and yeah. the author here seems pretty <laughs> clear that that's wrong. An evil heart. I mean, after what God has done for us, yeah. after what he's given for us, after what he's shown us, the mercy, the grace, the love, Amen. that we would say he's an austere man. Yeah. You know, it, 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 can, it can make the Lord himself angry.
0: Amen. I think in the the garden, the first words that the devil spoke um, were, he said, did God really say? And so what's interesting, I've often pointed out, is that Eve was not formed when God said in the chronology of events, we're told that God said not to eat of the tree to Adam before Eve was taken from Adam's side. Yes, And so the first question, the first utterance of the devil in this new creation was, can you trust that your husband is representing God to you? Did God really say? And then she engages the question and says, well, no. But she starts to have the conversation. Then he shifts to question God. First, it's questioning your husband. And in an escalating, typical fashion, the next thing is questioning God. And you just think about James and this idea of doubting and unbelief and how he says, if anyone doubts, he is like the wave of the sea. And he says, he is a double-minded man who will receive nothing from the Lord. Again, suggesting this separation from God, that, that introducing this mechanism of suspicion It's really exalting, it is a kind of pride because all these sins are connected, but it's exalting the mind as the knower to say, I can assess this, I can decide, is this trustworthy or is this not? I can't, I can't act as a loving child with a loving father. Walking with him in the presence of the day, in the spirit of the day, but I can exalt my mind to start analyzing him and others and come up with a c- conclusion that is for my advancement, that is for my benefit.
1: I think of the passage without faith, it is impossible to please God. Amen. You know, and God telling Cain, who was struggling with envy and all that, because He didn't have the favor of God. Mm -hmm. If you would do what was right, would you not be accepted? Mm -hmm. God is saying there is a relationship here, Mm -hmm. but you have to approach it in the right mindset. Like I quoted from Sunday from Hebrews where it says, uh, those who would come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We have to have a faith in the goodness of God, the character of God, the kindness of God. But he's not an austere master. He's a loving Father and, and it is His good pleasure to give us the kingdom we, we if we don't believe that trust that and we're instead like he's making these boundaries and you know he doesn't want me to eat of that tree because he's envious like me yeah and he's jealous of, of his power and authority and yeah. he doesn't want to share it with anybody and yeah. and you know you're just not going to find God and no. that's what I'm hearing in the passage you quote from James the yeah. double-minded man doesn't receive anything from God it's like yeah. well how come why didn't I get half of what I would have gotten from God yeah You know, and half of the time didn't get it because half of the time I was, you know, I was believing and half of the time I was not. You know, no, that's not faith. No, that's that's doubt. Right. That's wavering. Yeah. And guess what? You get nothing. Yeah. When you're in that position, there's got to be a whole soul trust. Says God, it may take a while. Yeah. I need I need he rewards those who diligently seek him. But on the other side of this genuine, authentic, sincere reaching from my heart, trusting your nature and who you are. I'm going to hear from you, Amen. and what you everything you give me is going to be good. If
0: you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Amen. And which is really saying, giving Himself, He wants to give Himself to us. Yeah. He has made His Spirit to je- to yearn jealously for us. Amen. Yes, sir. I think of of um, how often Jesus uses the word doubt in His ministry. And, and just how we're really saying that the mother of, of sin here or the, or the starting point of sin is suspicion or doubt or unbelief. It's all the same thing. But Jesus said, um, Jesus uses this word doubt. He uses a couple of different words, but one of the Greek words is diakrino. And I remember just being astounded that it doesn't mean first and foremost to call a matter into question. Instead, it means to evaluate, assess, analyze, and consider a matter. So the doubt is, is sinful because it's putting us, our carnal mind, above God to analyze, evaluate, assess, and consider, not through the faith of a child, but through the pride of the tree of knowledge growing between our ears. And I think that that's oftentimes confusing for people because how do you know? Well, that's a whole other topic, and that's a valid topic, one I think we've discussed at times. But we're going to know relationally. We're not going to know by exalting our mind above God and analyzing it and coming to a conclusion. And that's why half the time it's not good and half the time it's not bad, because all the time, whether we conclude rightly or wrongly, it's it's coming through the wrong mechanism. It's coming through the carnal mind. We are we are inflated With the knowledge that puffs up, knowing nothing, to conflate a couple scriptures, Amen. Well, we can jump on to the next question here. I have a question about the account of Job and his friends. Oh, my phone is seizing up on me, Dan. Here, do you have that? I have it here. Okay, go ahead. Uh,
1: When it begins to say that the Lord was speaking, was it through Elihu, who had spoken up right before that? or an actual manifestation of the Lord to Job. I I tend to default in these things to uh, the simplest explanation that when the Bible says the Lord spoke, it was actually the Lord speaking to him, and that when it differentiates Elihu, it was Elihu. Um, I guess maybe the question, I don't know particularly where this is coming from, but maybe it's just because there's a different spirit about Elihu you know than in some of the previous friends, and they all have some truths to say. They have principles to bring to the table usually uh, that they present as truths. Um, and then Elihu seems to he seems to have a lot of good things to say. Mm-hmm. And so maybe they're wondering, mm-hmm. did Job start to hear the voice of God in, in Elihu, and and it's just placed as first person or it was a prophecy
0: maybe that's the question i'm not sure i honestly never I think, contemplated that but. yeah i think every indication is that god is speaking distinct from job's friends um and one of the one of the one of the things that would seem to bear that out is that the lord rebukes job's friends they're referred to the lot of them as job's friends throughout and then that same term is used when it says, "And the Lord rebuked Job's friends and told them that they needed to go and ask Job to pray for them, so that God wouldn't kill them and do to them worse things than happened to Job." Um, so it's hard to picture that coming out of Elihu's mouth. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to picture that God, that God <laughs> was simultaneously speaking through him and rebuking him and telling him to go seek uh, repentance, uh, prayer from Job. So I, I think the Lord is speaking by the Spirit, and the mode through which He's making His will known is is not clear. He could have just been speaking to Job's heart. He could have been speaking uh, to Job through Job. We, we're not clear, and the Bible doesn't make a hundred percent clear how God is making His word known. Could have been an audible voice. It could have been an know, audible it, voice. It does not say. Yeah, there's 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 no there's no clarity, but. I would not include, I would not say that that is likely to have come from Elihu because Elihu is categorized as Job's friends. And I I would say that the book of Job is one of the most profound uh, stories in the Bible and it's one of the most complex and the multifaceted uh, messages and meanings that emerge from it that are so deep and broad. But one thing that, that does emerge is that God is not looking for unanointed, ungracious truisms to be thrown at a problem. Platitudes, if you will, from religious people. Because that's what Job's friends did. And while Job doubted God, while Job uh, said that he feared God was unfair, while he begged for an audience, while he mourned, Job's friends were more evil than Job. In God's eyes and God rebuked Job but he told his friends I'm gonna kill you if you don't go seek repentance to this man that you've been slandering so the message Job says it in one of the in one of his responses to his friends he says you're like a seasonal brook in the rainy season you're bubbling and overflowing your banks, but in the drought you have no water and Job was saying you know you're all there when I'm doing fine But now that I'm going through this drought of a trial, you don't really have anything from God for me. So they're quoting truisms. They're quoting truths, but they're not words in season. They're not applicable to Job. So even the Apostle Paul actually quotes one of Job's friends and he quotes him uh, in an agreement as a a word of, of truth. But when it was originally spoken, it was not the word of God to that need. It was a truism misapplied.
1: Really harks back to our uh, broadcast last week. Yeah. With, and the question about principles. Yeah. And where we talked about how even Satan can speak, can quote the Bible, but it doesn't make it the Word of God and, and the place of principle, um, the godly place of principle, and yet how easily they're misapplied. And that's what you hear from his friends most of the time. It's in their minds, it's two plus two is four, you know. And so what we see here is, you know, two. Um, God punishes sinners plus two you've been punished or appear to be uh, so therefore four you are a sinner, <laughs> and Job is maintaining that he has not sinned in the ways that they are intoning, and they're saying obviously you did because this happened, and here's here's a true principle, you know, yeah. and the whole time we're aware because we have the benefit of the the balcony of three thousand years of of uh, hindsight, yeah. and and the writer has framed the thing in the beginning with what none of them really knew at yeah. the beginning that this is all about something much larger, yeah. and that there are there are there's a lot more going on here than their pea brains are able to get around, yeah. and so they've latched onto something that's true in and of itself, and yet is so untrue yeah. when other factors come into play yeah. uh, that they just couldn't conceive of. Yeah, but that's why we need God. Amen. There's always factors that we can't conceive of. Yeah. We need his spirit. Yeah.
0: We need a word in season like settings of gold and like apples of gold in settings of silver. We need we need a word that is seasoned with salt that it may give grace to the hearer. We need the words of the wise that are like firmly driven nails. We don't need platitudes or even recitations of scripture that are not anointed by grace. Okay. Um, good afternoon. Is there a scripture that speaks about one being cremated or not being cremated?
1: I think we had this question before. We have. Um, so we might be able to point somebody back to a previous
0: discussion. Yeah. Um, yeah I would say that um, traditionally speaking, Jews and historical Christians have veered away from cremation as a um, and that's because uh, we believe that our bodies are to be honored as the temples of God and so some people find it difficult to imagine how we are showing honor through incineration um, and so typically speaking that has been the pattern I believe the Bible would have been more overt if it had intended, if God had intended to be more overt, and we do see instances in the Scripture where bodies are burned during war, and that would seem to indicate that, you know, in a time of mass death such as a plague or a famine or war, that there would be exceptional approaches to these patterns that would be typical in a in a healthy society. So, in in our in our context, we don't have. Some hard and fast statement about this that we cannot draw from scripture ultimately, it needs to be up to the families who are who are responsible for honoring the deceased and honoring their wishes um, but in general, it would seem that we are not we are not showing a greater honor by incinerating a body, even though it 's not the person, even though it 's a folded tent, it is. Taking them to ashes and dust, as the Scripture says, so I'm not I'm not ruling it out, but is that the most honoring way to do it? A lot of people have historically felt that it was not, and that has generally been our pattern here as well. But we're not aware of any particular Scripture. Um, but I'll just go back to the first question that we got. Um, someone sent in a comment about that, and I thought this was pretty helpful. They did they did point out that. This is clearest in the New American Standard Bible. So I just, just for... I had a feeling you were going to get that in. Now, what version is this Bible that you have here? Oh, this is the New King James. Okay, good. Good. Okay. Uh, So on the first question where the individual asked about uh, Christ being preexistent as a corporal human prior to, or with a corporal body, prior to his incarnation uh, they, and then you know in what sense were we made in God's image they said that in Romans 5:14 Adam is identified as the figure of him who was to come of him who was to come right. foreshadowing so it, he was the figure or type of him who was to come quote unquote so Adam was created in the image of God, but this includes the image of what Paul says, quote, him who was to come, which includes even the fleshly body of the word that became flesh. So thank you to Brother Howard. Appreciate that clarity. Okay, so uh, unless we have any other questions, I think that's going to give it a wrap. Is anything else to comment on? or? I don't think so okay well can call th- it early yeah thank you for tuning in I mean we had four five questions but we got through them fairly swiftly I guess we could have taken more time <laughs> All right well God bless you uh, Lord willing you'll see us next week.